You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri. This is Seba Hassan, and I am super excited because it's a Friday before Thanksgiving, and my littles are not going to school next week. So guess what that means? No lunch prep for me for five days. <laughs> oh, that is. A I very would be more exciting. happy about no drive lines. No drive lines. I don't That's mind awesome. it because you know what I've been doing. I've been listening to what? my audiobooks because I only do the carpool mm-hmm. line in the mornings. So that's when I listen to oh. books for pleasure versus books ah. for like work or for our things. And I'm telling you, it's kind of like a built-in self-care thing for me, and I absolutely love it. So, nice. note to self, people: Audible, download our podcast, listen to us while we're driving. I know Isma was waiting for me to mention that, but she knows that I hate hearing my own voice, so I never, I will, won't do that, but I will listen to audio, audiobooks. Um, but how was your week? Because I know you guys had some exciting things happen this week. Um, not super exciting. I did get my booster for the COVID vaccine because I am more than six months out and I was really afraid of um, getting COVID because we're seeing the numbers go up again. So I was afraid of getting reinfected. Um, So I took it and a normal reaction to the vaccine happened whereby the lymph nodes under my armpit were swollen and the day of I was fine. It was the next day where the pain was so bad it reminded me of nursing again because I was putting the packs of frozen peas under my arms like constantly. I would say the pain was akin to mastitis for any nursing moms, man, in solidarity. I was like, I can't believe women have to put up with this for two, two and a half years. I'm dying over 48 hours. I mean, it was so bad. I ended up taking Advil multiple times um, because I couldn't lie down flat. I couldn't lie down on my left. Um, But alhamdulillah, that got better. It is um, concerning for physicians when you have like, you know, there's some key ones here too that are also swollen and still tender. And so we always like panic when we see those. But, you know, we know this is a documented effect that's happening to some women and a sign of a robust immune response, like your body's really ticked off. Just know that I had the Pfizer in the beginning and I had the Pfizer again. When you get get in the booster, you're getting a smaller dose of the original, but that smaller dose generating a big reaction like that, even generating upper respiratory symptoms or temperature is pretty normal and a sign of a good immune response, not that you are getting the COVID virus. Please do not propagate or believe that. Do not disseminate that false information. We're sick of the disinformation. We are very scared. Like you're excited about Thanksgiving. I'm scared to death because I know that our numbers are going to spike after the holiday as people get lax with their social distancing, get lax with their vaccine. On Uzma's world, um, on Instagram, if you go there, uh, Dr. Uh, that particular doctor is an infectious disease specialist and she just put out a book on, you know, this year in a pandemic. And her advice for being safe on Thanksgiving, three things. Number one, get vaccinated. Number two, get vaccinated. Number three, get vaccinated. Because everybody's vaccinated, we have a lesser chance of carrying it to our susceptible population. So please, that's our PSA and my week. Or you could be like me that we don't ever go anywhere. 
So yeah. it's just yeah. with our family and we don't go anywhere and you know, we just don't have enough time with all the kids activities to do that. So we just stay at home mm-hmm. um, and eat chicken because nobody likes turkey and that is pretty much oh, about no. it. It's, so I, I get that, but we've all been boosted. My husband and I have been boosted. My younger two are, have gotten their first um, vaccination and my older two are due for their booster in a couple of weeks. And we are super excited about that. Um, so hopefully, inshallah, we'll so see what excited. happens. But, um, you know, I, I just wanted to say my week started, and I'm going to let you know basketball has officially begun. Oh, and I geez. know you get scared yeah. about that. And as I was screaming and cheering for my kids yesterday, I realized, oh, no, I can't do that because Usma's going to get mad, especially because you have to scream louder when you're wearing the mask. So... I am going to be chewing gum or doing something like that, so I do not scream at basketball games. So that is my week for you, and I'm excited to hear what our soapbox is. Our soapbox today is about a, um, I believe is the Washington Post article. It came out on November 8th, and it was about the blue wolf technology that the state of Israel is using. Uh, against Palestinian people. So the way the Blue Wolf technology works is it's a mass surveillance um, tool. And basically what they've done is incentivize their IDF, their soldiers, uh, I think they're called Israeli Defense Forces, which is their paramilitary police, highly militarized police as as we've seen on social media and the news itself. So basically, um, they are incentivized, and we're not sure how, if it's a monetary incentivization or what it is, but um, there's a quota that the a former soldier, <clears throat> former soldiers have corroborated this and said that it is true that you have a quota of so many Palestinians that you need to photograph um, because they're creating this database of Palestinians without asking their permission. And remember, this is, quote unquote, the only democracy in the Middle East doing this. And they've been doing it for a really long time. In fact, they're also the creators of the Pegasus system, which was recording what people were doing on their social media, recording their Facebook conversations, recording recording their telephone conversations. And it only got uncovered because they were doing it to President Macron of France. So it's like when you go after the big guns, then, you know, there's like a big to do for five seconds and then Nobody talks about it anymore. Meantime, Pegasus is still active and they're still recording the movements, conversations and everything of mostly political activists, writers, thinkers, um, people that are um, in any way could be pro-Palestinian in any way. So for people who are like, oh, why is that a big deal? Because, you know, they're just doing it for security purposes. How would we like that happening in the United States? Not that that hasn't happened in the United States, because we know the NSA exists here and they've done it plenty for our enemy forces. But remember that for the last 20 years, enemy forces look like me. So they've done that in our massages. We've talked about that before uh, with the Supreme Court case hearing um the FBI, uh, Fezica versus the FBI. Um, and now uh, this particular technology, Blue Wolf, I did look it up, okay? And you can look up Blue Wolf technology. However, it's not, there's not a lot of information that explains how they're working. And so you can't really write a letter to them and they're US-based. So I'm trying to find the Israel-based one so that we can write to them and say, hey, creating a national database of one ethnic population 
is called racism. It's a system of apartheid. It's being used for genocide because when you have the database and, you know, that's how they do their midnight or it's not even midnight. It's usually 3, 4 a.m. raids of Palestinian homes. The IDF soldiers have on their device the face of the person. That's how they can go and find them. And it doesn't matter what age you are. They're doing it to minors. They're doing it to older people. This is absolutely a violation of people's civil rights. Um, And they're doing it not just in Gaza, they're also doing it in the West Bank. So um, I think the Biden administration, basically any government that has aligned itself with Israel and has called itself, you know, pro-freedom, pro-democracy is now super embarrassed. And the Biden administration (laughs) said the following. Uh, Oh, well, it's not set. Yeah, it did. They blacklisted, quote unquote, whatever blacklist means, the Israeli uh, group for acting, this is in quotes, contrary to the national security or foreign policy interests of the United States. Well, blacklist is something, but you can blacklist and we can't BDS. That doesn't make any sense. Why don't we all BDS and then we save trillions of dollars in defense money that we give to Israel that also funds Blue Wolf Technology and Pegasus, which they're using against our own political activists, our own U.S. citizens, in addition to our allies across the world. So um, I don't have an address to write about Blue Wolf right now, but I am looking that up. So make sure you check the show notes and hopefully I'll have it by then. If nothing else, I will have links to this particular technology. If you are people of Palestinian descent, you already know that at the when you come to customs and when IDF holds you, they know your entire family history because they have documented generations of their families and they know this. It is illegal. You can't do that. Um, that's why like 23andMe is private, we think, right now. Um, I'm telling people not to do it because eventually something like this could happen to us in America too because if our democratic allies, in quotes, in the Middle East are doing it, then it's not very long before we're going to do it too because these are all, as we know, um, Gaza is kind of a giant lab to test all kinds of paramilitary techniques. The military-industrial complex has been doing its research there for years and now selling its technology all across the world. I think um, Israel is the eighth largest exporter of arms now. Uh, And how are they doing it? We funded it. So think about that and check our show notes for links on what actionable items we can have after that. And that's our soapbox for today. I'm I'm never going to look at the name Wolf or Blue Wolf uh, the same again. So thank you for that enlightening uh, enlightening soapbox because I always learn something new. So, you know, we are actually super pleased to continue our November series on this wow-worthy Latina Muslims. Um, joining us today is Hazel Gomez, a trainer with the Collaborative Muslim Power Building Project, a comprehensive community organizing and leadership development program for Muslims nationwide um, in which an Islamic framework is core to the curriculum. Hazel has a bachelor's degree in forensic science. Oh my gosh, CSI, we can t- well, I'm going to talk to you about that and is now studying Islamic sciences as Rabada, whom y'all know we really, really love. Um, check out our episode last fall with Anse Tamara Gray. Hazel also volunteers and advises various nonprofits within the Metro De- Detroit as well as nationally. Earlier this year, she was named by the Center for American Progress as one of 21 faith leaders to watch out for and we are honored to have her here with us today welcome hazel 
Assalamu alaikum. I'm so excited to be here with you, Uzma and Zeba. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for inviting me. Assalamualaikum. We're so happy to have you here. And we, before we dive into all the wonderful work that you do, we like to kick off by asking our Muslim moms a little bit about their momming story and what their momming philosophy is. So my momming story is is pretty interesting. One, I am pregnant right now, hence why I am standing. Oh, mashallah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, alhamdulillah. Um, you know, Mommyhood and uh, my momming philosophy, especially with the work that I do, is they really go hand in hand. Um, when I became a mother back in you know late 2012, it just felt like the world just completely changed. One, this little human being that Allah blessed me with that now I had to care for. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Um, and so it was another reminder as well of how important it is to have community. Um, just growing up in my Latino background, you know, Puerto Rican and Mexican, the women really always like came together. And so I noticed it even more once I became a new mother and the importance of genuinely relying on other people. As someone who usually says no, when, when if, if I need help, no, I got it. No, I'm good. I'm, I'm cool. I had to learn how to say yeah, I could use a meal today. <laughs> You're going to do a meal train? Okay, I'll accept <laughs> it. So it was really humbling, but such a good reminder that community is essential, um, not only as a Muslimah, but also like as a new mom and just navigating the world. And my momming philosophy is, one, maintaining the fitra of my children as best as I can. Um, and I'll dig a little bit more into that and what that means, you know, holding on to their innocence, but also slowly opening the window a little bit to some of the injustices or some of the things that they see or that is around us in the world um, while preserving their innocence. But I'm the one that's doing the teaching, right? Instead of a friend or someone else who doesn't have their best interests in mind. I love that. I love everything about it. And I can't wait to hear more about what sounds to me like a little bit of the self-directed learning. So everybody here knows how much I love that. So um, this is Latina Muslimas this month on Momming One Muslim as Zeba um, introduced. So tell us a little bit about your family background um, and maybe some of your own experiences with racism pre and post Islam. Yeah, yeah, sure. Bismillah. Um, so like I mentioned, my family background, you know, uh, Puerto Rican on one side, Mexican on the other, but very much raised like a Boricua, very Caribbean in my upbringing. Um, I was raised by my grandparents, alhamdulillah, all four really. You know, I was raised by my maternal grandparents and like two miles away, my paternal grandparents lived. So I was able to, you know, go back and forth between both households. Um, and also very Catholic, right? So in my Mexican grandparents' house, like you came into the house and there's a big, big uh, poster of the Virgen de Guadalupe, like the Virgin of Guadalupe, Virgin Mary, alayhi salam. Um, but it said, God bless the Gomez family, right? <laughs> you said that in Spanish. So <laughs> I, I grew up with an, a deep love for the Virgin Mary. May Allah be pleased with her. And I also, you know, just grew up very Catholic, Um culturally Catholic and also practicing as well. Um, and so for me, once I became Muslim, you know, I became Muslim as a teenager. My family thought that it was a phase that I was going through, that once I started college, that I would forget completely about it. I mean, 18 and a half years later, I'm still Muslim. I pray to 
my last days to be Muslim and, and that my progeny remain Amen. Muslim like Prophet uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam prayed for, inshallah. I mean that all our children Amen. hold on to this faith, inshallah, until the end of time. Um, and, you know, and subhanAllah, when it comes to racism, which is really interesting, right? Because when it comes to a lot of the work that a lot of community organizers do or sometimes activists, because those are two different things, um, it's a lot of things that we go through when we're younger, that really shape us. I'm sure if I asked each of you, you know, certain questions, right? Like some coaching questions, you'd be able to pinpoint a moment in your life that led you to this moment right now. Like why you both are hosts to an amazing podcast that is so necessary for Muslim mommies, right? And so for myself, when it comes to racism, my, you know, some of my first experiences were really in, in downtown Chicago. I, I went to a predominantly Latino African-American school on the west side of Chicago. And I'll just never forget, I was at a museum once and we were maybe like 10, so roughly like fifth grade. And we're all just like, you know, you're in the museum, right? So the atrium is loud and there's like all these school buses outside and there are children from all those, all these different schools in the Chicagoland area with their uniforms and we're just like elated. And I remember standing there and... The, this this family passed by and she looked at us in a snobbish way. And she said, oh, these Latinos and black children. And I remember almost like policing my classmates. Shh, guys, guys, like we got to stay still. Guys, guys, like let, let's act right. Let's act right. And looking back, I was like, huh, we were behaving the exact same way as other children do on a field trip. We were excited to be in downtown Chicago, one of the best museums. And it was a moment that I really reflect on of, wow, we're really looked down upon as, as communities, as Latinos and African-Americans, we're really looked down upon. And it was a changing moment for me that, you know, I personally never wanted my own children to go through that whenever I would have children, right, as, as I got older. And that moment just really shaped me, among other moments, um, dealing with police officers coming to my house um, due to issues that, you know, of our neighborhood and, and really being mistreated by police officers, being the official translator of the family, as many of you who are maybe first gen know what that's like to be the official translator, um, as the cops would mistreat my grandparents. And I had to stand there as 11-year-old, 12-year-old and uh, defend my grandparents from, from, this, from the system, from the state. Um, so that was before Islam. Interestingly, after Islam, you know, there's so many things that brought me to Islam. Um, but subhanAllah, the racism, the racism I experienced within Islam really turned its ugly head when I was looking to get married, actually. As I'm sure we all have horror rishta stories, <laughs> horrible, like, proposal yes. stories, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure if we wrote a book, there would be horror and comedy mixed in one um you know but there was this yeah. one one uh one particular person who i had been talking to who really left a terrible taste of islam in my grandparents mouth to this day i think they've gotten over it because it's been almost 19 years <laughs> of me being muslim i've been married alhamdulillah for a, a little over a decade um but, you know, this I, I remember this this one particular uh, brother whose father said to my face, 
we don't marry Mexicans, they mow our lawn. I remember oh my, my Wally busted out in his native language to the family. Um, and oh I was floored. I was hurt. <sighs> I was offended. And I'm so glad my friend got me up. Um, and they were just like duking it out in their own native language. And I just remember this brother had the audacity to reach out and say, I'm still interested in marrying you. We'll work on my father. I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) How do you work on that? Uh, Yeah, exactly. That's not my job to deal with, you know, each individual's, Mm -hmm. you know, personal racism. That's something that needs to get worked on. You know, if you have a close relationship with someone, like you work on them with that. It's not my responsibility as the target of that to work on that, right? Um, That for me... You know, subhanAllah, that, that, was a, that was a big moment for me. Um, and it made me realize that, yes, Islam does not allow racism. But unfortunately, we are people. <laughs> we make mistakes. And how do we go back to the prophetic way, right? Because in the last sermon of the Prophet, peace be upon him, one of the things he uplifts, subhanAllah, one of the things he uplifts is the reminder, no white person is better than a black person. No black, per- no black person is better than a white person. No Arab is superior to a non-Arab. And no non-Arab is superior to uh, an Arab. And so it's almost this reminder of like, Prophet Sallallahu said that in the last sermon. We may be dealing with that until the end of time. <laughs> we may be dealing with racism until the end of time. But we have a responsibility to at least do something. So, you know, subhanAllah, it's, it's been a journey with... Uh, you know, with everything, alhamdulillah. Um, but you know, I'm here, still standing, and and trying to do the work. <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad you didn't get turned off, and that you still are here. Because quite frankly, like my mom always says, like she converted as well. She's like, I'm glad I converted before I met other Muslim people, because that really helps me continue and stay on the path. Because she's like, Muslim people are not necessarily what they're cracked up to be all the time but um it you know i i definitely feel for that but you know in islam is one of the fastest growing religions right now in the hispanic communities what do you think is attributed to that or is contributing to that yeah you know alhamdulillah i love that question um and your mom is hilarious (laughs) i've heard many people say that we just have a responsibility as Muslims to, to have good character, inshallah, and not allow this world's, this world's gunk and muck to get to us. Um, so, you know, to, to your question, you know, subhanAllah, yeah, Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. Um, it's the fastest growing within the Latino communities. And as Latinos, we're the fastest growing uh, minority group uh, within this, within, you know, the U.S. borders. Um Honestly, it has to do a lot with the decentralizing of faith within overall, just nationally, and what that looks like. Um, and people are really searching for something, right? So, you know, speaking for myself and other Latinas and Latinos that I know who have converted, it's trying to understand the background that people came from, right? So if people were Protestant or Pentecostal or Catholic, from their respective home countries of Latino America, there was this this community of holding on to faith um, 
to an extent, because even now Islam is spreading within Latino America very rapidly within uh, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. And people are looking for something. <laughs> people are looking for something beyond the materialism. They're looking for answers to really tough questions. And I think that as faith leaders, one of the things is to really answer people's questions and help them find their path to God even if it may not be that path that one is on. I mean, so when I was little, I had my my uh, spiritual crisis when I was 13. Um, so when I was a 13-year-old looking for faith, I, I kept turning to my faith leaders and the Catholic Church. I kept asking questions, um, and I kept getting shut down. And so when I stumbled upon Islam as a 15-year-old, really looking harder when I was 16, I asked all kinds of questions. I asked friends questions. I would ask them to ask their local imams, you know, their faith leaders, right? And then I found out later it was an imam. Um, and by asking questions, one, my friends said that they learned. But two, it was also this beauty of like, huh, I'm allowed to ask questions. There's, there's things that, yeah, we should have blind, blind faith about, but... It's okay to ask because our minds and our hearts really are looking for something. Um, and so within the Latino community, that's also just very similar, right? We, there's, so many, there's so much within our culture that is also coincides with Islam, which is so beautiful. So there's some like practices that when I became Muslim, I was like, oh, yeah, I already, I already do that, right? Like, you know, respecting my elders, I never left my house without asking my grandparents for blessings, right? I never woke up without first asking my grandparents for blessings. So like honoring the elders was something that, you know, we always did um, and something that I instill within my children as well. And so there's this yearning and subhanAllah, I think the numbers are, they say upwards to 250,000 based off of data and research, 250,000 Latino Muslims across the U.S., which is huge. I mean, not, not a lot, because, right, there's 1% one, 1 of the U.S. Muslim pop. I mean, 1% of the population of the United States is Muslim. But, you know, 250,000 of us, I think that's, uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I personally think that's, that's amazing. And it's so funny that you said that as well, because my mom was actually um, Catholic before she mm. converted. And it was a similar story for her, because she was like, I was looking for something bigger than myself, and I kept mm. getting shut down. Yeah. And I kept getting shut down. And the whole concept of the priest, the priesthood to her just didn't quite make sense. Right. Yeah. She's like, I feel like I should have a direct connection oh, to God. And they're just not asking, answering the question. So I, I think that that's actually really interesting that you had a very similar situation. Um, and just for the people right now um, that are coming and joining us, Uzma dropped off because she's headed over to the Fireside Lounge to interview our, our book where we're doing a book a book club over there, the book book club. So I get to have the pleasure of finishing up our our interview, Hazel. So I'm really excited about that because, you know, right now one of the things that I've noticed is that everywhere on the forefront, you know, Latinos and African Americans right now are really in charge. Um, whether it's like immigration, anti-Muslim ban, or or BLM, they're really in charge and on the forefront of a lot of these. Um, social justice movements what do you think within the community belief system itself that 
creates this social construct to do so, to do so because because I believe that like you said you have this this concept of family and and community and and I feel like you're you're very impassioned by that do you feel like that's something undercurrent in the culture that sustains this particular social justice movement yeah so you know so many social justice movements within the United States borders have been spearheaded by the African American community as well as the Latino community and when we become muslim it's more grounded within the prophetic tradition i'd like to i'd like to say i'd like to think inshallah and so you know i'm so grateful that you asked that question because now especially post the election uh, in 2016 so much was happening right the anti muslim ban um more immigration reform as as well as you know the onslaught of the black lives matter movement these movements are an extension to what has already been a part of the U.S. history. But one thing I really want to uplift as well is that we're a large number together. So I actually don't like using the word minority um, because we're, we're the majority, especially when we band together. And so in order for us to bring about the social changes, these are things that are affecting us directly. And I'm also seeing a lot of young Muslims from Muslim-majority cultures that are also joining these movements because they see it as a responsibility that they have to do something. And this is something that it's, it usually happens that when we're directly impacted by a particular legislation, when we're directly impacted by something that is tearing apart our communities, that's when we speak up. And so as Muslims from different backgrounds, it is really really, really important to also join such movements, even if we're not directly impacted, because we're people who are supposed to bring about change and help bring about change, inshallah. And so, you know, when you mentioned, um, actually, when Uzma was talking about like the IDF, for example, you know, I was just sitting, uh, standing here and just thinking, you know, our, our police forces across the United States are actually trained by the IDF. That's why a lot of the tactics are very similar. And so this is something that, you know, you can look it up in the ACLU, right? Just how much things are interconnected. There's no separation. Um, you know, in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico, for example, there's a lot of solidarity with the Palestinian movement as well. Puerto Rico being a colonized land of the United States. And so being here, we see a lot of the injustices happening. And so us as Muslims or Muslims who do come from Muslim-majority cultures who may think, this doesn't impact me, that's false. I'd like to share a brief story. During the, um, during the time of Cesar Chavez's uh, movement and Dolores Huerta uh, back in the early 60s, uh, you know, subhanAllah, there was actually a huge janaza that happened during the grape, um, during the grape boycott. As I'm sure many of you are listening, like, what, there was a janaza and uh, <laughs> during something that was predominantly led by Mexicans? Yeah, because there was a young Yemeni farmer who was a part of the movement and he was actually murdered by the police and the Mexicans who were Catholic knew that he was Muslim and they wanted to respect him as a Muslim and they actually did a janaza for him. And so that's, that's the beauty is like we need to share these stories we think of these movements, yes, they are led predominantly by Latinos and African-Americans, but there were other people there as well. 
there were so many East Asians and Filipinos and Japanese folk who were involved in these movements. There were Yemeni farmers involved in these movements. And here was a community that respected the faith of this Yemeni Muslim man and, and offered him a janazah, subhanAllah. This is our history. And so when we learn these social movements, we can't just turn a blind eye. We can't just say, well, that doesn't impact me because whatever affects the black community will affect the Latino community, will affect the broader Muslim community, which includes everybody, <laughs> right? And so, you know, the, the Muslim ban, that's an immigration issue. The surveillance that Uzma was talking about for Blue Wolf, that's something that we all uh, have experienced you know, the NCERS program that started at the onslaught of 9-11, right, and ended in December of 2016. That was a Muslim registry, right? So what we do is, yeah, I'd like to say it's a community belief system, but it's also people understanding the importance of community and what does it mean to be in community with each other and genuinely looking out for each other. And as Muslims, I mean, that's, I mean, we're an ummah, right? <laughs> like we're a community of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So how do we, we genuinely want for our brother what we want for ourselves? Then we should be joining movements that to the best of our capacity, we should be doing something, just anything, whether that is actually changing it with your hands, whether that's speaking out against it, or whether that is hating it with your heart and making du'a to Allah, right, as the hadith says. I mean, that's that's spot on. And we say that a lot here on Momming Well Muslim as well. And, you know, part of what Uzma and I are doing within our, our own children, with our own children, is, you know, creating opportunities for them to, to participate in these uh, movements on some capacity. And to the extent that they can you know, make up, I have an 18 year old now who makes up his own mind about what things he feels passionate about. And as a mom, I like to help support him with that. So, you know, with you being, you know, one of the top 21 faith leaders in, you know, in America, it's so exciting. And you on the forefront also of a lot of these social justice movements, what are you or are you talking to your children about um, maintaining this type of, um, uh, the word I'm looking for is like attention to the broader community. Yeah. How are you instilling with them that value that you were taught by your ancestors? Yeah, you know, thank you so much for asking that question, Zay. But something that my husband and I do grapple with, right? Because I mentioned in the beginning, holding on to their fitra, holding on to their, their God-centeredness, but also maintaining their innocence, right? And so we, 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 open the window just a little bit to show them what's going on and then shut it as much as their little hearts can take. My son, one is nine and, and the other one is seven. You know, we had a moment last Ramadan that I'd like to share, if that's okay, inshallah. Um, so in, in actually May in 2020, when the murder of George Floyd happened, um, you know, pandemic, children were at home. I was working. Um, I was working on a particular project. I was managing seven community organizers uh, based here in Detroit, working on different things from police brutality to human trafficking. And so uh, my kids were always around <laughs> and they were always listening to my conversations because that's what kids do. Um, and if subhanAllah, I was on one of those calls actually that they heard about the murder of George Floyd. Rahimallah, may Allah have mercy on him. And... You know, I didn't make anything of it. They didn't know. We don't have a TV on with news or anything. So during iftar, one day, 
my then five-year-old, because he was five at the time, he's like shaking. We're having iftar. And he's like, so my, my husband is African-American and Lokota. Uh, he's, he's Native American. That's the tribe he's a part of. Um, and he, he looks at my husband and he says, Daddy, do, do you have to go to work tomorrow? And my husband looks at him. He says, yeah, Harun, I, I do have to go to work. Why? He's like, Daddy, I don't, I don't want you to leave the house. I don't want you to get killed by the police. And my son, the older one, looks at me. My husband looks at me. I look at the five-year-old. You know, he's five at the time, like I said. And I'm like, Papi, Daddy's going to be okay, inshallah, right? We, you know the du'as by the door? We always read our du'as. Daddy's going to be okay. We're going to ask Allah to protect him. But this is why we do what we do, right? This is why mommy and daddy do what we do. Because we want daddies to come home and we want mommies to come home. And he started crying. And so when we put him to bed, my husband and I had a conversation. He was like, Hazel, how do the boys know about that? And I was like, mi amor, they really must have been listening to my calls at work. And so we had to have a conversation with him because he was really scared. Anytime he saw a police car, he would be really, really scared. He's gotten a lot better now, alhamdulillah. And it was a reminder of, baby, each person is different. This is a system. And we need to dismantle this system and make it better. But there are some bad people within that system. And the cop who murdered George Floyd was a bad person. And, you know, it really breaks my heart because sometimes people will say it's too early to talk about racism with our children or it's too early to talk about this or that. Here was my five-year-old. He doesn't have the luxury of ignoring these things when it directly impacts him as a little Puerto Rican, Mexican, African-American, Lakota boy with his Native American card, right? Like these things affect him and they affect our household. And so, you know, my ask for people who want to think this doesn't affect me, it sure does. Like I said, policies that affect one community trickle down and are altered to affect another community, you know? Um, And so, you know, what we do is just little sneak peeks into different things in history, sneak peeks into what's happening now. But we always talk to them about it. Like if we do go to a march or something, I do prep them. Right. And I, you know, say like, this is why we're going to this March, because this, you know, we went to a Juneteenth March um, last year, uh, organized by my job. And we all had masks. You know, we were saying, what's Juneteenth? Like, well, this is this is the celebration of African-American freedom, not July 4th. Right. So they were excited. They were excited to be in a Juneteenth March and celebration. So my recommendation would be if you do go with your children to these protests and these marches, Prep them first so that they know what they're going to see. You know, be sure that you and whoever is with you, you're all on the same page as to like any exits, any exit strategies. Um, And be present with your child and answer the questions that they have. You can gauge it how old they are, but be honest with them, right? Because the beauty of Islam is to be honest, (laughs) right? We don't want to be hypocrites and lie. But we also do want to hold on to the innocence of our children for as long as possible. No, I I 100% um, agree with all of that. And, you know, you can explain these types of things in an age-appropriate way. Absolutely. Because sheltering them, I mean, unfortunately, like you said, your children don't have that the luxury of being in the dark. 
And I feel like even if my kids might have a quote unquote a better or they can pass or whatever the case may be and they, they have more of a um, privilege where they don't have to know certain things, guess what? It's incumbent on me to teach them because then they can be an advocate. They can be an ally. They can be, you know, somebody and they can be prepared when they see it themselves. Because like you said, if you can't fix it, say something or hate it within your heart. So I definitely appreciate all the things that you're doing. Um, and that leads me to the, my, my last and final question is what kind of amazing projects, because I know you have a long list of them, are you currently working on right now? Yeah. So, you know, one of the projects I'm mainly working on is A Dream of Detroit. It's a local community development housing justice project here in Detroit. Um, I actually live in the neighborhood that uh, that we work in. Um And I'm also one of the national leads for Believers Bailout, which is using zakat funds to bail out Muslims in pre-trial incarceration. So what that means is they're not on trial yet. It's just a holding. And so if your bail is $100, we can bail you out, (laughs) right? Um, And it brings back the importance of innocent until proven guilty. Um, And so, you know, Believers Bailout and Dream of Detroit are near and dear to my heart. And, you know, as mentioned earlier, I am a student of Rabata. Uh, Sheikha Tamara Gray is uh, one of my teachers, and I've been a student there nine years now at this point. SubhanAllah. Uh, started nursing my baby in <laughs> my first class, I remember. Um, you know, so alhamdulillah, these are, you know, just some projects near and dear to my heart, you know, on top of uh, the Muslim Power Building Project, alhamdulillah. I love that. And we're going to have all the links in the in the show notes as well, because that's an amazing project to be a part of and like like you said innocent until proven guilty is a basic fundamental foundation for justice and so the fact that you're doing that is amazing so what i'm going to do right now and what we always do at the end of our show is i'm going to set a timer for a minute okay and i'm going to tell you i'm going to ask you these quick fast questions and i'm hoping you're ready for it okay and we are going to start it right now what is a book that you're currently reading right now? Uh, History of the Prophets of Islam, Volume 1, and, well, Volume 1, by Suzanne Hamid, Hanif. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. For class. Oh, you're, That's like, for class. I love, <laughs> you're like, it's for class. I don't have time to actually read for fun. What is something, you know, we're ending the year coming up. 2021 is ending, and believe it or not, 2022 is starting. What is one thing that you're actually looking forward to in 2022? Uh, my third kid. He'll be born at the beginning of 2022. I know. <laughs> God, I can't wait. Um, what is a hidden talent that we don't know about? Oh goodness, hidden talent. I learned Chinese for seven years, and I think Chinese is easier to learn than Arabic. <laughs> oh my gosh! And so you know, you talked a lot this um, during this episode about uh, the impact of your maternal and paternal grandparents. Can you share with us a memory of them that you would like to put in recording for your future generations? A memory of my maternal grandparents is Saturday mornings being woken up at 7 a.m. by very, very, very mountainside country Puerto Rican music <laughs> um, being blasted on the record player in order to get up and get ready for the day just because it was a weekend did not mean you slept in it meant you cleaned and you had family time 
Um, and then my paternal grandparents' memory, same thing, being woken up very early on Saturday mornings um, when I stayed over there. And it was usually by really old school Mexican cinema movies from like the 1940s. <laughs> God, I, I would have loved to be woken up like that. So thank you for sharing that particular story. And hopefully you're doing that for your kids that are such beautifully mixed children, which I loved hearing about, because, you know, waking up to all the music and the fun and the festivities of our ancestors before us is quite a way to wake up on a Saturday morning. But I hear you about those seven o'clock yeah. um, wake up calls. Um, <laughs> not fun. But Hazel, we are so, so appreciative that you took the time today to come on and let us in um, to your world for a little bit. I know Uzma is missing out on this, but she'll she'll go back. She has to edit this episode, and I'm sure she's going to keep it all in because she loves you. But inshallah, we'll talk to you soon, and I can't wait to hear all the things that you're up to. Thank you so much, Zeba. I'm so grateful to have been here, and keep up the amazing and much-needed work, mashallah. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.